Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, monkeys and squirrels, welcome back to another episode of the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams reality. Today's podcast guest is Mark McShirley. Mark is the co-owner of Roof Simple, which is a fast-growing roofing repair company in Northern Virginia. In four and a half years, they went from being a $600,000 business to a $10 million business. And if that's not impressive enough, most roofing companies just have a handful of average or bad reviews. And at the time of this recording, right now, Roof Simple has 278 ratings on Google with a five-star total rating, not 4.7 not 4.9, five stars, five stars, pretty impressive. (laughs) Today, they have a dream of turning their company into a national brand, utilizing a unique approach to roofing and having an intense focus on customer satisfaction and simplicity. In this episode, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, why Mark believes it's actually easier to run a $10 million business than a $3 million business and what that has to do with his passion for art. Number two, how playing with friction was one of his secret sauces to growing his business and what that means and how you can use it. And number three, how in their first year of business, when Mark was expecting his fourth child, he was spiraling into debt, used up all of his savings, had a panic attack that sent him to a hospital and how he turned things around from there. All of that and so much more is what we dive into today. And one last thing before we get going is a pre-show listener shout out to Perspective, P-U-H-S-P-E-C-T-I-V-E. I I think that's how you would say it, Perspective. (laughs) Perspective, he says, Brandon does a great job providing insight to entrepreneurs of all ages, but especially younger startup types who are still trying to find their entrepreneurial foundation. Brandon seems to have some great connections through his talents and networking and efforts and collaborative engagement. With any guest he has on the show, he always seems keen to help the conversation at it to keep the conversation at a level relevant to his target audience, which is appreciated. Looking forward to hearing about the growth in his pursuits, the lesson he learns along the way, and insights brought by his guests. Keep it up, Brandon. So thank you so much, Mr. Perspective. And I want to say, if you are listening to this and you haven't left a review, and if this isn't your first episode, because obviously listen to the first episode first before you leave a review, but please leave a review if you haven't done so already. Not only does it make my day, it helps other people to find the show, and I might give you a pre-show listener shout out in the future. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible interview with my friend, Mark McShirley. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mark, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. Thanks, Brandon. Looking forward to it. It's going to be a blast. So I wanted to start somewhere in my research. I found this little article on you and I thought it'd be really fun to start here. It says Mark devotes about five hours a day on Roof Simple and about three hours each day reading, exploring, and painting. Mark has an intense interest in paint, art, art history, and the relationship between art and culture. So I thought this would be a fun place to just start a conversation. What inspired your passion for art? Uh, Actually, when I was a kid, I took art lessons. I I think I was probably five or six um encouraged by my parents and actually my uncle and um yeah it just stuck but i had a i had sort of a philosophical crisis in my late teens and stopped 
painting for, well, really until a few years ago. And um, part of getting back into it actually was kind of solving the business equation. Like I always had this thing in me of like, if I was going to do art, you know, I wanted it to be successful and to do something impactful. Um, and, but I also needed to pay for stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to ask what, what was this philosophical issue you had as a kid then? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> basically. Were, were... Yeah. Uh, so basically I felt like uh, everything had been done sort of. And mm. so, you know, as much as I enjoyed um, painting and stuff like that, I, I felt like, well, what was I going to contribute? And if I was going to go about it, I wanted to, you know, do something important, I guess. And, um, and I felt like, you know, in the 20th century, the art world had pretty much, you know, it's, you know, we went from, you know, representing things to, you know, going just for the, the emotion or the feeling of a pure abstraction and all of that stuff's interesting, but it sort of felt like it had all been done. Um, and you had this philosophical issue as a 10 year old about, about, Oh no, I was a little about. older. No, no, okay. I, I, I was like, I, I was, I think like 15 or 16. Still, I mean, you were thinking about the context of like how your art fit into the world then you were worried about it not fitting into where you wanted it to fit, I guess, is kind of what I'm hearing. Yeah. And then, and then I also, I mean, that actually was the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. Um, Hmm. Because kind of right after that sort of philosophical crisis, I started my first company. So. And what was, what was the very first company that you started then? Uh, I think technically it was like a lawn care company, but the real first company I had was a dexting and pressure washing company. Um, and I just sold it door to door. It was called Stain Brothers. And we had this cute little logo that was like these, like a black and white photo, you know, like an old black and white photo of like two, two little boys or whatever. It was pretty fun. Um, but yeah, I sold that door to door. Um, I definitely did better than my friends. Um, and actually that lasted through the end of high school and then uh, partway through college. So why do you think you did better than your friends? Like, was there something that you could clearly pick out as something you were doing differently than everyone else and sales just kind of came naturally to you? Oh, oh, I just meant in the sense I was doing better. My most, most people had a normal job Ah, for that age range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, I was imagining you just on the streets, just crushing everybody else in the door-to-door sales. And oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we did do pretty... Actually, and I had a partner, to be fair with that. One of my friends was my partner in that business. So yeah, we did well together. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you said you, you kind of like lost the interest for art. You started your entrepreneurial journey. And then, I mean, it, it sounds like from this article that I found on you that art was kind of reintroduced as something that actually has helped you in your business right now. And I, I came across this thing that said... I don't know if you said this specifically, but it's basically, it's easier to run a $10 million company than it is to run a $3 million company. And that you were basically, the idea behind it is that you were, you you felt like you needed to put all of your energy into Roof Simple and growing this thing. And you needed to be creative all the time. But then you started experimenting with art and found that, you know, you were making business decisions easier. So I kind of wanted to zoom in on that because I thought that was super interesting is that most people think that as entrepreneurs, you do need to be grinding all the time, doing all these incredible things. So can you like expand on that a little bit about like how pursuing art actually helped your business grow? Yeah. So I feel like there's different, luckily there's different types of people in the world. And if you're, if you're on the like more, much more creative side of the spectrum. Um, you're a danger to yourself and others. I mean, Adolf Hitler was an artist. <laughs> um, and it, uh, especially when you're, you know, 
putting yourself into it. Um, you're, if you're really creative, you also get bored easily. You want to be doing new things. You want to be pioneering new territory. So roofing, you know, can benefit from a little of that. But at the end of the day, it's about showing up every single day, doing a great job, serving customers. You know, there's not massive, um, you know, amounts of innovation. There's, there's a few key things. Um, There's more to come, I'm sure. But um, it's not like that's a 40 hour a week job, uh, being creative in the roofing industry. A lot of it's just, you know, managing people, showing up, making decisions. Um, So what I realized was that I was, um, over the, really over the past couple of years, I feel like 2020 has been just, was just an amazing year in terms of like lessons learned and um, getting to know myself better. Um, but basically I, w- I was realizing that my, my creativity was actually hurting. It had gotten to a point where it was actually hurting the company because it was this personal need. It wasn't the bit that the business needed mm. me to do these things. It was my personal needs. Um, and, and, and so I started playing around again with painting and things like that and, and went down some cool rabbit trails there. And, um, and I just felt like once I, once I wasn't putting my, I think it's important sometimes like you, you need to put enough of yourself into the business. Um, and it's important that you're proud of it and that it's, it's your baby to some degree, but I think you also have to let it grow up and you have to let it be its own thing and stand on its own two feet. Um, and that if you're overly like, this is, you know, this is my total body of work or something like that, then either your business literally needs to be something like art or a one man show. Um, you know, maybe where you just have some helpers or, you know, something like that, which those can be amazing businesses, you know, like a personality business. Um, but you know, if it's something like roofing or you, you know, you manufacture widgets or you're a software company, um, the company, you being overly, um, putting too much of yourself or your ego into it, I think is not always healthy and can really hurt a lot of the people who are working for you, who are putting themselves into it too. Uh, and you're not leaving room for other people to, to bring what they have. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I had this crazy experience a few weeks ago where I haven't, I never skied growing up. I never, and, and I had this experience where I got to go skiing for the first time in my adult life. And, and so we're like going down the, like we're in the car and I'm seeing these people barrel down this, this black diamond. I'm like, oh my God, there's no way I could ever do something like that. And I, so I started out on this bunny hill and I ended up progressing from, from bunny hill to black diamond by the end of the day. And in this one day of thing. And the, the reason why I bring that up is because I found that the week after I did that, I felt like so much more, I don't know, I guess, I guess I found myself more creative. And I, 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 part of that I attribute to, I interviewed somebody else on the show. His name is Steve Adams and he, he studies flow. And he says, one of these things is that when you are in flow, it doesn't matter what the context of flow is. You could be art, it could be business. It could be something the more flow you get is the more flow you get. And I found that like, maybe it was because I had this skiing experience where I was having this flow of this new experience and it transitioned over to the business. So is that something that you find that like when you get to pursue art and you're just kind of in the zone that you get to look at things from a new perspective on your business? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just, it, it flow is just, I think, healthy for your brain. I'm, I don't know all the studies or whatever, I'm, but I'm sure there's studies that would back more or less that statement up. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think in our day and age, we, we don't get enough flow with that unless you're really conscious. Um, and that includes like being conscious about smartphones and things like that and the, you know, stuff you let into your life. Um, and I think that also just, it, it's kind of, 
the lack of flow has creeped into everything. Like uh, we're always, we're always notified about something. There's always something like coming into our world, um, whether we invited it there or not. And I think finding space for all kinds of things, whether it's like, you know, something outdoors like skiing which is super awesome i have never actually skied in my adult <laughs> life either and i may we it's one of our actually our sales uh incentives so i will probably be going skiing for my first time in march <laughs> nice cool enjoy uh, it was it was a lot of fun and i i had a lot of fun applying some of the stuff that i've learned on the podcast i interviewed somebody uh named blair dunkley and he teaches these things called mind models and it's like i, I guess i don't really want to go into it but the whole idea behind it is that in skiing specifically, it's, it can be viewed as like an, an embarrassing thing, you know, cause like you, you fall or like, you don't know how to get on the lift appropriately and your skis get ripped off. And like, you just look like an idiot. Cause everybody has to stop for you. And you're, and he teaches this mind model where it's like evaluation versus judgment. Like if you're judging yourself, you have emotions in it and you're kind of like worried about what other things. Whereas if you evaluate, which is a big difference in evaluating what happened and then moving forward versus judging yourself and what happened. And so anyways, it was just kind of like a fun, fun thing to apply from the podcast of just like seeing how to strategically look at things and just constantly improve. So I'm curious to hear your report back on how your first skiing experience went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I like that. I, I really like that. I think that applies to probably a lot of things that evaluation versus judgment. Um, I like that. Um, yeah, he teaches. So, I mean, I guess we could we can go on this little side tangent, but it's like evaluation versus judgment and then effective versus ineffective. So like so many people ask why based questions, like why did this happen or why is it not going this way? But like he he's like, use the mind model evaluation versus, or not, sorry, um, effective versus ineffective. Because that way it's pretty black and white. Like, yep. yeah, I fell on the ski hill. And like, so I clearly did something that was ineffective. So like switch to evaluation or um, effectiveness versus ineffectiveness and then evaluation versus judgment. The last one is, uh, internally verifiable versus externally verifiable. So if like, if it's something that you're running through in your head and you're worried about it all the time, it, you know, is it, is it something that's internal or is it something you can physically see based on behaviors? Cause otherwise it's just kind of this random thing that you're doing. So yeah, I've just found those, the three E's to be really helpful when in business decisions and skiing, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. Like cool. Well, cool. well, so I, I want to ask too. So one of the things in, in this shift that I saw in this article uh, of talking about you being able to pursue more art is that in order to do that, you have to like, make sure your business is set up so that it's running on systems. And so do you, can, can you maybe comment on that and share about how you're able to kind of pursue the stuff that you want to pursue because of the way you've set your company up? Yeah. So, I mean, my CEO would probably say we don't have enough systems, um, <laughs> but we, we do pretty well. Um, a lot of it, uh, I think any, any kind of, I don't know, like I would say like typical company, I think you, um, you know, like roofing or, um, I don't know if you're a manufacturer or if you're in some other service-based business, um, it's fairly straightforward in a lot of ways to be the owner at the top and choose what you, how you want to be involved with the company, um, as long as you're able to delegate. Right. Um, and hire. So, um, that's sort of a natural progression for, I'm not unusual. I don't think in my industry, I think, I think other owners, um, you know, fill the time, um, and, or, and, or just don't delegate, but it's, it's very doable in construction. I mean, uh, and, but the, I think the real core, I guess that I, I would, I would say is more personally, um, focusing on discipline over hustle. So, hmm. I, nobody does eight hours worth of work or 12 hours worth of work. I mean, nobody, I mean, we kid ourselves. So I think there needs to be like intellectual honesty and, and 
when you're honest about how much you really get done or how much is just water cooler stuff, filler stuff, uh, you not guarding your time um, or poor systems that are just creating a recurring problem that shouldn't even be there, a recurring time suck. Um, I have, 2020 has been really good for me in that way too. So like, I've always been, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever read anything by Richard Koch? He wrote like the 80-20 principle. I I haven't, but I've heard so many good things about it. Yeah, I would totally encourage it um, to anybody. But I was, uh, actually, I was introduced to him by a good friend and mentor, Perry Marshall. And he, um, and and so that was a long time. I mean, this is probably like over a decade ago or about a decade ago that I was introduced to Richard's thinking. And at first, I feel like I took kind of an immature um, look at the 80-20 idea and working less and making more and all that sort of thing. And it was sort of like, well, you just work less, right? So you just show up for less or whatever. Um, But I quickly realized through, you know, again, you go effectiveness versus ineffectiveness in the business. All all the biggest mistakes that I've made in business are related to... um, I'm, I'm like on the spectrum, like I'm okay with not having constant activity. That's just my personality. Other people don't. So that was never the issue. I'm okay, like putting it off or not doing it. Um, but the, the danger for that is that um, you're not disciplined. So if you're not disciplined, doing less work doesn't do you any good at all. Mm. Uh, and it'll harm you. Um, but doing too much, actually just throwing everything at the wall all the time actually harms you just as much. Um, as well. So discipline in what you do. So I would say, um, I mean, maybe uh, not being humble enough and patting myself on the back is that I, especially (laughs) over the last year, I've gotten a lot more effective and actually having the art uh, has completely changed it. Cause now I don't have to like, it's not like if I get my work done and was more disciplined about what I did that, you know, what am I going to do after that? You just kind of sit around or I, I don't know. Um, so having the art as is also a uh, it's like a carrot that keeps me being much more conscious about what I'm doing in the business. Like if I'm going to, if I'm going to, if I'm going to condense time, I need to make sure it's all really important things. Yeah. So. I think that's, I, I love that. And what I've realized recently for me that a, a big part of happiness for me outside of spending quality time with my loved ones is just progress and growth. And I feel like that's really common for entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. so um, that that's, I love that you kind of have on, like art as kind of like another way that you can make forward progression. Because if you're, if your business is your only outlet and like you, you finish at work, it's like you, your mind's kind of still where you can be growing. But as long as you have something that's outside of disconnecting, I'm thinking about ordering a piano over the next few days, just so I can have something else that's just try to <laughs> try to learn and distract me from, from business. So I, I love that, that whole discipline, uh, versus hustle. It's awesome. Um, Another, another thing I wanted to ask, and this is, this is the funny part. So this, I want to give some backstory behind this question. So, um, I called your company yesterday <laughs> and, 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 uh, the reason why I called the company is because I watched one of your videos that our, our mutual connection, Bob, which I want to thank Bob uh-huh. for, for, for introducing us to begin with on the air here. But, um, so, uh, I watched this video that Bob put together for feed stories, this incredible story about roof simple. And one of the people that showed up on there is this guy named Colin. And I'm like, uh-huh. he's a senior partner in roof simple. And I'm like, well, why don't I just call Colin and see <laughs> if he can tell me something about Mark, uh, that would be interesting to ask him about the podcast. So I ended up calling roof simple and I got Colin's number and I 
I talked to Colin for like 17 minutes and he's like, yeah, I, I, I love Mark. So that, that's just kind of me, uh, me, me hunting behind it. And then, and then Mark calls me, uh, yesterday. He's like, Hey, you called my company. I'm like, yeah, for a really ominous reason that I'll tell you about tomorrow when I, talk, when I, when I talk to you. But one of the things that Colin said is so Colin's worked for uh, Ruth simple for three years and he's known you for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to share some insights. And one of the things that he said that was interesting was that, uh, he said that your siblings all kind of fell down the traditional path. They felt like they wanted to go to college, get a degree and that kind of stuff. But he said that, you know, watching you at an early age, you didn't really seem to have this fear of failure that like most people did. And you were okay with doing things that were more non-traditional. So what do you think made you more comfortable with following the non-traditional route when you saw all your siblings or maybe some of even your friends doing things that were more the prescribed path? You know, it's really funny. I feel like it was probably my mom's decision to homeschool me, um, which ended up <laughs> being accidentally unschooled, I guess. Um, Cause I, I'm actually the oldest of 10. Um, so she was, she was a busy woman, but I, um, as long as I can, as far back as I, I as far back as I can remember, um, I, I don't know. I don't feel like it's total hubris, but maybe it is like, sometimes I'm like, why was I that confident about that? But I guess I feel like if I see it a certain way, then I'm okay with it. So like, I don't need everybody else to see it the same way, but I need to feel comfortable in, inside. So like, I know I actually think of myself as very conservative with risk. Um, and like, I try to control all the variables really hard and, and like think everything through, but, I definitely, I guess, break the rules in the sense that I, I'm willing to just completely rewrite how we think about it. So like I dropped out of high school effectively because I got a good score on the SAT in 11th grade and then went and did like a exchange program thing in Spain. Um, and then I went to college for a year and a half and dropped out. Um, one of my favorite things was uh, I loved philosophy and that's what I would have majored in if I had stayed. Um, but the third semester I was there after which I left, I failed philosophy because I had too many absences, but I got an A. Said my teacher, he was, he was super awesome. He was like, good job, but you failed. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I don't know why that is. I, I, I I honestly, I think it was just that my parents were kind of gave me an unconventional education. I pursued like the art. I I just like dug in myself and, and was self-motivated about. So I had a lopsided education for sure. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't like math as much until I took a course in symbolic logic and then it all clicked for me, but that was in high school. So the whole previous time I wasn't getting enough math probably. Um, so, you know, I've had to correct some of my, my, my lopsidedness, but, um, but it was great because I was able to just kind of pursue it. And I don't, um, I guess that's how I've always thought. So maybe I'm just insane or I don't know. <laughs> well, okay. So there's something I want to ask here. So you said you were the oldest of 10? Yes. Okay. So, so what, what the heck was that? I mean, so I have a younger brother, but like, I can't even imagine growing up with nine other siblings and, and you, you being the oldest, you're supposed to be the responsible, you know, the, the one that's like, you know, looking out for other people when your parents need to do other things. So I, I always like, ex- I always like exploring things that happen in childhood. Cause I feel like lots of what happens is in our current reality is a manifestation of what happened when we were younger. So yep. do you, do you think that like, you know, you being the oldest of not uh, uh, having 10 kids in the family had anything to do with the way that you ended up becoming an entrepreneur? 
Yeah, actually, it's funny when you say that and I think about it. Um, so there's three sisters right under me. Um, and the first two, we were all like almost the first three of us were almost Irish twins. Um, so that was definitely hard for my mom. Uh, after that, they're all spaced um, and much more manageable. But and I think I wasn't too bad being I think I was OK, helpful to my mom. But I was <laughs> okay. a boy, which is not which is not as good as as like I, my oldest are girls. So that's really nice for me. Um, but I I would actually say that being the eldest probably gave me un, undue confidence <laughs> because when we were much younger and I was obviously the oldest. Um, so they believed what I said. Um, I mean, I guess I probably had an audience that, that made me feel like I, you know, I wasn't in, I wasn't in, like I had just, when I say homeschooled, we, it wasn't like any sort of weird cultish thing. We had lots of friends that we did sports with, you know, with the public schools and things like that. Um, it was a little bit more of the school area we were in. The main reason my mom decided was it wasn't a very good, um, uh, school at the public school wasn't very good and they couldn't afford, um, private school at the time. And then it kind of stuck. And then now actually my mom teaches at a private school and so the younger siblings have all gone through there. Um, but anyways, I, I feel like I got a lot of affirmation in a sense and maybe it wasn't always uh, deserved, but I do think that's probably a big looking back. I, I can imagine that's probably an important thing is to have that, that early affirmation. Um, and, and my friends were always close. Like even in high school, like I grew up, like a lot of my friends, like we knew each other for like most of our lives um, or at least for a core group of us. Um and so even in high school, when you're a little more insecure and you're like meeting a lot of people and you're dating and stuff like that, um, I always had people like, including my family that, that I knew weren't going anywhere. So that also gives you, I think a lot more confidence than if you're, you're a little unmoored or don't have that. So, and I know a lot of people don't, so it was a blessing yeah. for sure. Yo, th- thank you for sharing that. I just want to encourage anybody listening here. I feel like there's so much gold in your childhood and very few people like pay attention to it. Like, so like if you're listening to this and you haven't explored, you know, even the, ne- the negative or positive effects of, of childhood. I mean, I think I look at someone like Mark, you know, growing the company the way he has and being the leader he has. And I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense that being the oldest of 10 or nine, nine, having nine younger siblings that, you know, he was always expected to be a leader. So if you're listening to this, you haven't explored that maybe something for you to check out. But I, I also want to, so I want to know, we've talked about kind of your background. I want to zoom in on the business growth part of it. So like in some of the research I've seen, you went from $600,000 a year to over $10 million a year in about four and a half years. Right now, as of when I checked out your your company yesterday, you have 278 ratings on your company on Google with a five-star rating. And um, what I saw from the research is that part of it is that you, a part of the success you attributed to breaking down all the steps that people need to take to buying a roof. So I guess I want to start by what, what made you focus with that as like uh, the component of growth that you wanted to focus on when it came to simplifying and growing your business? Well, I'm going to step back before I answer and just sure, say that um, I feel like a lot of business success is much more in the moment and luck and good markets and gut decisions. And that then can be neatly post-rationalized and actually probably somewhat pretty true. Um, so a big part of the success um, that we've had so far. And it's, and it's not always been, I mean, even with growth, we had a whole different set of sins and pains. Um, actually I feel like 2019 was, it was a super fast growth year. And I I feel like it was in a weird way, one of our worst years, um, 
in terms of just like getting things wrong, making what seem now in, in retrospect kind of rookie mistakes, things like that. So it's not like this clean, you know, thing that we had pre-thought out. And the other thing is like, um, uh, I'm out of, so I, I'm actually equal partners with uh, my friend, Marty McMahon. And out of the two of us, I'm, I'm definitely more like, you're more likely to find me on a podcast or something. Um, uh, maybe just my personality, but Marty actually um, was a huge part of the growth. So we have an interesting kind of balance. Um, so I'm definitely like uber creative and always ready to change everything tomorrow and rethink everything all the time, um, which is good and bad. Most, most things that are good are also bad and vice sure. versa in terms of like, traits um and he's much more like um focused like what's happening today like i'm also like really long term like what's the market gonna be like how can we like you know do all this crazy stuff um he's like how are we making money today (laughs) because we need it um and so actually he's the one who got us into um the insurance restoration side of things so my background in roofing was actually not in that market Mm. um and i actually looked down on it and justifiably because it's a messy industry it's maturing a little now there's some better players um but it was definitely a little bit of a wild west um but anyways i guess a lot of growth is is finding a geyser um i mean that's one i love like i'd highly recommend uh richard kosh's book the star principle and the star principle is very simple it's just that um all the best businesses that you, if you're going to invest or create or be a part of um, are ones where the market itself is growing more than 10% and you're the leader in the market. Hmm. So you can, he, I highly recommend reading the book because you can, how you define the market and define growth and everything obviously is a huge in, in creating that. But one of the things is it, it shows you is having a little humility about um your your success it's like yes we we got into a geyser this industry uh the insurance restoration there's been a lot of like uh with population growth and living in coastal areas or in you know the west coast and forest fire prone areas like a lot of times we actually think that um i mean there is a lot of climate change but we also it gets exaggerated too like because um you know there's just more homes in danger prone areas and everything like that but either which way you look at it, um, this is a growing industry and, um, and actually co you know, the 2020 didn't, didn't really put too much of a damper on it. We didn't get as much storms last year, at least in the areas we currently service. But anyways, all of that is really to say that, um, you know, we got into a good thing and we learned how to ride the horse. So mm. I feel like, um, with a lot of businesses, that's unless i mean there's there's always some sort of what i call like rocket scientist businesses in the sense where you come up with something truly new and and really just blaze a trail um but even something like google they weren't the first search engine um you know and facebook wasn't the first social media and you know there's there's iteration and everything and so it is i i think a lot of business success is finding the right market and then find the right people to deliver whatever you're going to deliver so i think what we've done right is more is almost very simple like there's just some very straightforward things we're in a growing market um we've found a way to lock down certain territory pretty well um we still always have work to do but we've done a a decent job of that um 
And then I think one thing we've gotten much better at is, is, is the people side of it too. Um, because that's in our business, a huge part of it because we're service oriented. So the part where you shared about like, well, first of all, thank you for sharing the part that the part that you shared about, like, you know, it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards. I think that's like a Steve jobs thing, but I think I read a book called the click moment a while back. And I don't remember the finer details, but the gist of it was that like, you look at all these case studies of how businesses have grown and it's always easy for somebody to go back and write a book and be like, yes, because we did this thing and this thing and this thing, this is how we became successful. And if you want to be successful, you should do similar things. And there is some truth to that, but I mean, it kind of goes back to the, what we were talking about before about the, the mind model effective versus ineffective. Lots of it is just taking action, identifying the right thing and figuring out if what you're doing is working or if it's not working and just iterating on that. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And I think that it was very, you know, uh, 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 a great insight just to share the fact that, you know, we may have done some things right, but lots of it is we rode the right horse. So, but I, I did, I did want to zoom in because one thing I thought was really cool is like, you did have this process of deconstructing the entire industry. You looked at all the process, all the things that had to happen for somebody to get a roof on their on their house, and then you kind of worked to simplify that process. So, like, can you maybe share a little bit about why you decided to do that and what you learned as a result of it? Well, part of the reason I decided to do it is because I am overly creative and trying to do new things. Um, so that's the good part of it coming out. Um, and uh, I'm just curious. I mean, like, I read a lot. I've read a crap ton of business books. There's always a million more, um, but it's always fascinating. I mean, business fascinates me. Um, and because it's really at the end of the day, it's very human driven. Um, Mm -hmm. and so yeah, it's, it's always very interesting to me, but anyways, I, um, um, getting back on track. Sorry. I I lost my train of thought now. No worries. The question was focusing on how you decided to break down the entire roofing process and why you decided to do that. Yeah. So, um, well, because I wanted to innovate. Um, and then breaking it down, I realized that there's only a few pl- key places you can innovate. Um, and so that was, uh, you know, I going into it, we had, like, when we first started, we actually did um, quotes. You could request, go to our website, request a quote, and it would be delivered within 24 hours. It was usually delivered within an hour online. And it was, like, amazing. And you could sign it online. And this is five years ago before, like, 2020, where now that's normal. Um, but actually it didn't work well. Uh, closing rate was terrible. Are we like, we were giving it, like we were able to price it better because there was no sales commission and whatever. Like, so the early idea actually was to not even need salespeople. Um, and actually we've come to completely the opposite, um, realization that actually a good salesperson. And by that, I mean, somebody who actually like is providing service, uh, cause sales is a service if it's done properly, um, is super value and people actually want it. They really do. Like when you're spending 10, 20, $50,000 on, on a roof, I mean, for residential or whatever, um, you, you know, it's nice to look somebody in the eye or at least see that they looked at your roof in person or, or feel like you can ask questions about it. Um, it feels a little risky just to like click, Yes. <laughs> um, right. And so one thing uh, uh, I've learned is that you, you need to, you taking friction is an interesting thing. It's, it's in business. It's really important to play with friction actually. Mm. So in some businesses or parts of your business, reducing friction is the best possible thing you can do uh, and streamline things. But the reverse is also true. And I think that gets missed often because of our like really, you know, software driven world. It's like, everything's going to be easier, right? Well, some things actually should be harder and actually it's important that they are. 
Um, and the sales process was actually one of it. So like there's parts of the sales process that should be easier, right? So like obviously digital signings in person and like streamlining a bunch of, you know, basic stuff like that um, is very important. Um, but the, you can't really streamline um, decision-making, I think, through trust without the trust part. So like, yes, you can streamline trust, but actually the irony is the best way to streamline trust is to have a trustworthy person in front of you helping you make the decision and giving the trade-offs and whatever. Um, so uh, I, I think actually one of our biggest innovations in a lot of ways is uh, we have this position called job site support, which nobody to my knowledge does, definitely not in our com competitive areas, uh, maybe not in the country, I don't know. Um, it's very simple. We have this position that's basically a customer service position uh, on site all day with the customer. And even if the customer is not home, they're there to take photos like liaison for the customer. Um, so, you know, with our crews, like if, if they can't do their job, they don't even get hired. Right. So like these are top notch installers. Um, they do a great job. There's a foreman on site. He's managing the roof install. Um, but that we found is not enough. Um the roofers are focused on getting the roof done. It's hot, hard work. Um, it's up high, it's dangerous, whatever. They don't have time to like come down and answer questions or move the car or, you know, yeah, especially the just communication. They don't have time. It's like, we need to get this done because we opened up your roof. And if, you know, like we don't want this to sit out and get rained on, like this is hard work. We need to get it done. We're focused. Um, and so the irony is like, you can have, I mean, I've seen it, you know, I've been in the industry long enough now where like, I've seen it happen where you have like this awesome installers do it incredible job on your roof and the customer is pissed thinks they were cheated like all this sort of thing and all it comes down to is just that communication and feeling like there you were able to be listened to and your concerns were addressed and so we pay um to have these job site support guys and they have a decent hourly rage and plus overtime plus bonuses and commissions so um um it's, it's actually a good job. And, but it, it has completely changed our business. We did that in 2019. We started that in middle of 2019, I think. Um, and it really came uh, once we hired our, our, our current COO, um, we hired him in part to kind of take that over and make it what it needed to be and build up the team. And a lot of that's good management and good hiring. Uh, Cause we didn't do a lot of that well at, at, at the start. Um, but he's definitely realized that vision for us. And um, in 2020, it just has been really polished. So, wow, there's so much, so much I want to highlight there. So, so <laughs> for, for, uh, something you said, sales as a service, if done properly, that that's a really, really cool viewpoint. And that's been, I think obviously there's a wrong way to do sales and there's a right mm -hmm. way to do sales. And if you're truly serving people and helping people to make a decision, I love that you shared that. Another thing I want people to make sure that they grabbed was playing with friction that I've never heard it articulated that way. That was really cool. It's because in, like you said, in many components of business, reducing friction is the answer, but also increasing friction, which I haven't thought about much is that, you know, do you need to slow down the process? Because sometimes you can make it too frictionless and then it actually has a, a worse thing. And then the last, the last part of like paying someone to be on site for questions, I guess the thing I want to ask there is how did you realize that? Like, how did, like, it, it was the fact that you would have these incredible service and everything would go well and they would still complain and they were like how do we fix this is that what inspired you to have that on-site support person yeah so we started we always had somebody running around between jobs like addressing any issues or concerns that came up but 
obviously with fast growth that became insane. So it actually started out almost as so like when when we the very first year we didn't do much. 2015 we only did like three hundred sixty thousand dollars, whatever, like barely anything. Um, and I was our first full time employee. I did that position actually, so I was on site the entire time, every install. So that year we had obviously first of all we didn't do that many jobs, like thirty jobs or something, but every customer was 100% happy because I was there all day. So what happened was it actually ended up being us looking back to our roots uh, of our first year mm. and being after seeing problems and seeing burnout from people running around. It's like, why are we making like, you know, making work a little less stressful extends not just from the business owner, like not just to me. It's not just about me and Marty having, uh, you know, a dream life or something like that. Um, it's actually a lot more, about just making sure that each job is a good fit for the type of personalities who will thrive in it. So like in the job site position, you know, that's a, what I would call a reactive position, right? So you're, it's a, it's just a show up and do a great job, right? Like, you know, take everything that comes at you and, and do well with it. Um, those kind of jobs usually require more hours, you know, up early, all that sort of stuff, but people who thrive on them really, and that's not me actually, but, um, actually my business partner, Marty is more like that, um, than I am, but like, it is a, it is, can be a huge, actually stress reducer for somebody to show up, have clear, like I'm reacting and I did a good job. This customer is happy. You get instant feedback. Uh, you just have to show up in the morning and, and be amazing. Um, and that's actually reduces stress. So those kinds of jobs, if they're set up properly, you know, working 50 hours a week is not actually that stressful. Um, you know, depending on family life or something like that, it might be hard, right? Um, yeah. But but for the right person, they 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 really appreciate that. And then sales is actually the opposite. So like, the wrong person you want in sales is, or the wrong person for sales is somebody who would who really thrives in the job site. I mean, you get a few chameleons who can kind of do a little bit of both. Um, that definitely happens. Um, but but a good sales guy actually needs to want more space and a good salesperson is basically disciplined. All our best salespeople, I don't know if they art, would articulate it quite the same way I do, um, but part of, I consider part of working in sales, making sure you get sort of the R&R to be disciplined because you know there's that there's a bunch of books on willpower and stuff I, I can't remember the ones I've read, but the gist seems to kind of be, we only have so much of it, right? And so um, you better spend it wisely. And I think yeah. discipline is about deciding what, what you're going to spend it on. Um, so like salespeople, I, if they're, if they're trying to be reactive and work all the hours, those guys don't make much money. Um, yeah. because they're just trying to show up and get instant feedback. And unfortunately sales is actually, that's why it, that the reason you need R and R is because it's mentally stressful as whereas, you know, being just job for people sites, listening yeah. for people listening, I always want to clarify R and R for, for people that want clarification on that, just so they know oh, yeah. what does it mean? Rest and relaxation. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good okay. Point. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, there's a, there's a few things that, that I, I really love there. And actually two of them point to Benjamin Hardy, which is kind of funny because one of my favorite books is willpower doesn't work by Benjamin Hardy. And he was talking about like, yeah, you have a finite amount of, of, of willpower in a day and that you need to set up your environment so that you have to use less willpower. There's less friction. Um, and another thing that Ben actually recently re released a book called uh, Who Not How. And I love what you're talking about of having a really good understanding of 
what the strengths are of the individual people on your team, because you can look at somebody. And for you, I think you said, well, I don't remember your particular context, but for some people being on site all day is like a, a version of hell. You know, it's like <laughs> the worst thing is they're running all over the place, but for other people, that is what they want to be doing. And so assembling a team of people that understand what their unique ability, unique abilities are and placing them in roles where you can have exponential growth. Because if you have somebody that is really good at, at unique ability of being on site and placing them there, they could be you could you could want to fire them if you put them in the wrong role but they would they would have been great somewhere else so i love that you've kind of come to that understanding of putting people in the right role based on their unique abilities yes yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah Cool. Well, I, I have a really simple question I want to ask you. And I wanted to talk about the word simple um, mm-hmm. because I, I think like it can obviously mean things to different people. So what, what does simple mean to you as you've come to now you have it, it's 50% of the name of your company. So what does simple mean to you? <laughs> yeah, good question. So if you get a little more philosophical or even theological, simplicity is sort of like a total integration um, and a total alignment to one thing. So if you were more in the religious space, it would be like the absolute, whatever the absolute is to you. So obviously for Christians or whatever, that would be God or Muslims, that would be God. Um, uh, Hindus have, I think, kind of a different thing. But, but anyways, the, bo- the bottom line is there's always, for all of us, there, there is an absolute, whether we acknowledge it or not, we all have an absolute. Um, and so true simplicity sort of more philosophically is, is like a total alignment to, hmm. to what's absolute in your life. So in business, obviously, you know, thing, you know, the simplicity is actually just, um, keeping our eye on making our customers happy while is an interesting thing is we sort of have this both and caveat sort of in our mission, if you will, is like, it's not just about customer happiness because if the people delivering that aren't happy or, or are really, you know, too stressed out all the time, then you actually can't deliver that. So you, the sustainable way to do it. So like the simplicity of Roof Simple is literally just like, let's do what's right for the customer. Um, and and that's what like job site support became about having that person on site all day was like, and that's just, it's simpler. It's, it's simpler. The only reason not to do it is because you think, wow, adding all these people to my payroll, you know, when you've got like five or six jobs going on every day, that's five or six people now instead of like one, right? Or some quality control person. Um, the irony is, and the dirty little secret, if any of my competition is listening, um, <laughs> we save money because uh, if there ever are issues, some the customer has somebody to yell at right away, which is 80% of the solution. Um, and um, they're able to like return materials. So like we're way less wasteful, which saves us money. Um, they, they're able to collect money right away. So there's like reduced um, collections times for a lot of our receivables. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it changed our company from being a lot more stressful to, um, you know, being a lot more even keel basically. So I'm glad I asked that. And it, it, it's funny too. One of the people that I've studied a lot recently is Jay Abraham and mm-hmm. he wrote the book, um, getting everything you can out of all you've got. And so many people, yep. when they, they, they think about when it comes to growing a business, that the only way to grow a business is through more marketing and more sales. But there are so many other ways to grow a business that that have nothing to do with with growing. It could be client retention. It could be getting more revenue out of the same customers and that kind of stuff. And I think that that level of thinking of, you know, yes, it is more expensive to have somebody on site, but realizing the downstream implications of having somebody to solve problems, reduce costs is something that 
is a, a really creative way to grow when most people would not think of that as a, a growth mechanism. They would look at that as something else. Yeah, they look at it as an added cost, which is why nobody does it. But it, it, the other interesting thing to kind of tie back into that is that um, the it would be cheaper for us if we didn't do whatever it takes for the customer. So one thing Marty and I decided, like actually what's one of the things we really bonded on actually when we've, so we kind of known each other before we started the company, but I was looking to, to move on from the company I was with and I had actually just approached Marty because he had a construction company with his dad and I had just approached him like, Hey, can I come, you know, maybe sell some roofs for you guys or something while I figure out what I'm going to do. And so we just had some beers and got talking and then we we're kind of like, well, maybe we should just start our own. Cause we were kind of just talking about all the different things in, in the construction industry. And, but one of the things that really frustrated us the most was if you ever, if something is wrong, um, it is actually pretty simple to get customers to be happy again. And, and, and you know what you have to do? You just have to make it right. Okay. But it's really, <laughs> cool. it, it's really interesting though, in the construction industry, like if you don't price jobs correctly, like this isn't, people often get like uh, villainized in the construction industry for, you know, be, not making things right and stuff like that. But I actually sympathize with a lot of these people because they haven't priced the job correctly. The customer is pressing, you know, pressuring them on price. Um, and they're, you know, we're not the most expensive, definitely, but we're definitely not the cheapest because you do have to price things right. But, and then you have to have a system for delivering. But like, you know, in construction, you've got, human error you've got weather i mean you have suppliers you have just like so many variables so stuff goes wrong easily and fast um and i feel like throughout my entire time in construction it was just really interesting that a lot of good people have had to not deliver on their contracts um and upset people because they cannot afford to make things right um and they Mm. and they often are like or they're like paralyzed. So like something goes wrong. And then the first thought is like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose money on this. And so you try and like, well, would they accept this? Or would they accept this? Or like, you know, like, let's say I, I, uh, I don't know, damage your Japanese maple that you bought and it's, it's priceless or worth a lot of money and, and you really care about it. Right. It's not priceless probably, but it's, you know, it might be like <laughs> two, two grand or something, right? Like you bought an older one and it's really pretty, um, you know, so we drop something and it breaks that tree, right? So if I go in, like I might be like, oh crap, now I got to, it's going to be all the money in this job and whatever, you know, all the profit. Or, uh, so let me, you know, try and negotiate with the cu- customer. That as soon as you start kind of thinking not of the customer first, then it, you get paralyzed and, and then you actually end up pissing them off and then they think you're the worst person in, in humanity. But the reality is, is it all started much earlier with the price and the process. Um, and so one reason we focus on roofing is because it's something that you can kind of simplify. And obviously I have a background in it. Um, but like, if you want custom remodeling, like the reality is, is that the most important thing you can have is communication in that situation, because it's very hard to go to a, you know, completely to the letter. You've just got to have some, you, you have to trust the person you're working with at the end of the day. Um, yeah because their stuff changes all the time. Yeah, it's it's a we live in an Amazon world, you know, and where everything's instant and easy and construction will never be that easy. Um I mean it gets easier and aspects get easier and there's less friction in certain aspects, but um that's something you're up against in in the construction world. Is that not everything can be a click away. Um 
but you do, but it is still worth trying to simplify everything you can towards that, uh, which is what we try to do. But I always like to, I've been better at paying attention to things that I hear getting repeated. And I had a conversation with someone this morning and he has started 28 different companies. And he said to me that one of the number one reasons that the majority of his companies failed had to do something with communication. That could have been internal communication or could have been communication with the customer. And so um, I love that that's kind of like one of the core components of what you guys do is not only, well, you talked about it as sales, sales as a service. Like obviously that's some form of communication. Having somebody on site is a form of communication. You know, your willingness to make the company happy. Like those are all actually different forms of communication that you're using inside of the company. And it's just kind of wanted to bring that up, even though it was just kind of a random conversation I had. <laughs> yeah, that. no. That that's I mean that, you're absolutely right. I mean communication is and and the best. Uh, that's a really good point actually. That's a that's a further layer of clarification on what I meant about like our transition from going actually frictionless back to a salesperson and then adding another person into the mix on the job site. Is the reality is the best form of communication is this. Um, yeah. And ideally person to person, but you know video's video is pretty good too. So. Yeah, yeah, I think. People are, and especially in today's world, people are like lacking on communication. Like it really feels good to just have somebody that can actually support you in what you're looking at doing when we're so detached from our daily reality. So I was going to say something else too, and then it just totally disappeared. So it's gone. Um, <laughs> so, so simplicity is obviously one of your core um, drivers or core, core values as a company. And another thing that I saw that I thought I wanted to discuss with you is another core value of yours is thinking long-term. So can you maybe talk a little bit about why that's important and why that's one of your core values? Yeah. So I think that, well, in a weird way, it's, it's, it's being risk averse. I think, um, I think that's a, going back to the earlier question of like, why, why would you like do something different than the norm? Um, but it, it's actually because it's long-term thinking. So long-term thinking often appears risky in the short term, but it's actually one of the mm. least risky things you can do. So, I mean, thinking long-term, I, you know, I wasn't meaning to bash Amazon when I was saying we live in an Amazon culture, but um, Jeff Bezos, I think has, uh, um had a he's had a really big focus on on long term and i think when he's lived up to that it's really served him very well and you know he he famously in one of his shareholder letters or whatever he talked about how um you know nobody's you know faster faster deliveries you know better prices better customer service none of that ever goes out of fashion like if you if if you just keep focusing on that in a thousand years people will still want it more or less mm. you know some version of it and i always thought that, that was really powerful because you there's so many especially it's ironic you know especially as you get a little bit bigger your company gets a little bigger uh one of the real dangers is there's just so many opportunities of all kinds and shapes and sizes and whatever and if you don't have any long-term vision, it can really distract you. And we've, you know, we've made that same mistake too. I mean, even having roof simple in the name and trying to be, you know, customer focused, but at the end of the day, like with roofing, it's shelter. That's an essential thing um, that people need and will always need some version of it. Um, And um, it's probably for a long time going to be delivered by people. Um, And that means communication is always going to be important. and it means that because communication is important, it means trust is important. And to have trust, you have to have 
like a certain amount of credibility and credibility signals that you're giving. And, and one of the signals is a good reputation. And so, um, yeah, I mean, again, it just sort of keeps it simple in the sense of like, don't like if, if you messed up, don't deliberate, just do the right thing. Boom, done. Don't think about it because if you think about it, they get more pissed off. You end up spending the same or more amount of money. That's what we find. It's like, it's just this, whenever you deliberate and you're like, ah, you know, is there a way to do this all cheap or not, del- you know, not make this right or like save a few bucks here. Uh, it always ends up that you spent just as much or more and they're still pissed off as whereas if you're just like, nope, we'll fix it now. Um, you know, we're so sorry. What can we do to make it right? And then do it. Then you actually, you spend the money, but at least you have the chance of a five-star review or, or somebody who refers you. Um, as whereas the other route with deliberation, you might spend just as much money and they're still pissed off and telling everybody that you're terrible. So, yeah. Love all that. I took like seven pieces of notes that I, I want to I wanna comment and mention. So uh, on the, the long-term thinking thing, I think something that's become really relevant for me re- lately is this whole concept of transactional versus transformational relationships. And if you, if you view things from that perspective, it's really easy to take the shiny carrot and have a transactional relationship where you're just trading some money for a business opportunity, but really those do more damage in the long-term. So I love that you said that long-term can appear risky in the beginning, but also short-term obviously is, is, is really risky as well. So love that. I also wanted to comment on it. One thing that it seems like you do very naturally is first principle thinking. And like, this is something that I, I love. I, I first heard Elon Musk talking about this, but he always, you know, the idea behind first principles is that a first principle is something that you can't break down anymore, right? Like it is a core fundamental truth that you can then use to build back up. Um, instead of reasoning from other people's thinking, you have to look from the very beginning of first principles. And I think, you know, communication is a first principle. Like you said, building for the long term is all about identifying the things that will stand the test of time that will continue to be true for forever. You don't have to worry about your, your business crumbling on some fancy new tap tactic if you were, you were based on it. Um, and I'll just keep going cause I have all these notes here. Another thing that you said, I thought I really liked was, um, dangers are actually having more opportunities. It can be dangerous to have a lot of opportunities. And this is something that has become very true. And one of my mentors has been saying to me over and over and over again, client selection is everything. Client selection is the game and you can replace client with, you know, partnership or whatever it is. Like that is actually the game that we're all playing. Cause if you're choosing the wrong people that actually is going to create more issues. So learning how to say no to those opportunities. And the, the very last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up and, and get back to your, your incredible wisdom, Mark <laughs> is, 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 is I, I, I interviewed somebody, his name is Josh Fonger. And one of the things that he talked about was that by having these core values or he had some other term, it's like you empower people within your company to make decisions like you would, but most people don't have it clearly articulated so that your you know, people that are not, you can't make those decisions. And I love how long-term thinking, it seems like it's almost like a heuristic for your, your company. It's like, Hey, this happened as a result, like we are going to take this approach and then it's been communicated to everybody so that you know how it all operates. So there's, there's my, my riff right there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a great recap. I appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, another thing I wanted to ask too, is I came across a interesting way of phrasing things. And you, one of the things I mentioned earlier that I kind of zoomed past is the fact that you have, I think I said 278 five-star reviews on Google or Mm -hmm. something crazy like that. And so you talk about something called review velocity. So can you tell us what review velocity is and why that's so important? Yeah. So um, I've actually been de-emphasizing it a little bit now, but it's still a really important principle. Um, And it's just the idea that it's actually goes back. Honestly, it just goes back to um, 
sort of a, a different version of the um, net promoter score. Okay. Um, which are you familiar with that? Like if you've ever been asked, I, I am I, yeah, okay. basically, but, but for people listening that aren't, can you explain what MPS is? And yeah. So net promoter score is basically, uh, if you've ever been asked, like how likely are, are you to recommend us to a friend one to 10 or whatever, uh, nines and tens are promoters, I believe. And then seven and eights are neutrals, I believe. And then six and below are detractors. And so your score is calculated by, um, your promoters minus um neutrals detractors. and detractors oh neutrals right? and okay right or no minus your detractors right yeah because it doesn't total 100 percent, right so um the core it's not really important that you understand nps the the, the basic lot the basic point is that you need a high what it's trying to tell you is you need a high percentage of happy customers in order to grow Okay. Mm. So like the study that was originally a Bain and company study and they, and, um, and their whole point was that if, if you have like an NPS of like, I think it was like 70 plus or whatever, like 80 is really good. So it was like 80 plus or whatever, then you have a, you're very much like much more likely to have a fast growing business. Cause you're going to have referrals and things like that. So like Amazon, even in the early days had like a mid eighties NPS, which is just incredible, uh, especially at the time. Now more people have gotten better at it, but um, so Review velocity is another way of looking at the same hmm. thing, which is how many people coming through your business, or, you know, how many customers coming through your business are having a good experience. So in the construction industry, so one of the core insights I feel like that I had was in the construction industry. So the, the company I worked with before, um, they're still around. Um, actually, my younger brother is marrying his oldest daughter. Um, so that'll be fun, but gr- super great guy. Um, but one of the <laughs> wait, hold on. Lines. You said my younger brother's marrying his oldest daughter. Hold on. Yeah. That, that, like yeah. That, that sentence, don't take that out of context. Let's understand what that actually meant. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, um, no, it's just, just to say like, he, they're a good family. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. Like the company I work, cause I was with him for nine years. Um, but and he's and it was a good company. Like he's just an honest guy. Was doing right by customers. But there is when I started to notice because I, I started in sales with him and then was the general manager. And one of the things that did frustrate me uh, sometimes was was that deliberation or like not knowing if you had enough money in the job or whatever to be able to to make something right or um, whatever. So there there ended up being I think in the construction industry, I think there's a lot of neutrals. Um, which is misleading to people. So, mm. so like you might have a bunch of five star reviews, but as a percentage of your total business, um, you know it's uh, a pretty small amount. And there's all these people who are like basically what I, I realize is all the really good companies in the construction, specifically roofing industry, had a, a big amount of neutrals, and they didn't necessarily have a ton of detractors, like who they're you know totally pissed off or whatever, think they're charlatans, but they just have a lot of people of like, you know, shit happens, it's, you know, it's a roof, whatever, who are just kind of in that category. So job right. site support, um, part of what they're doing is hopefully getting a review, um, but also like we track internally whether they asked for a review. So people, I guess why where I'm saying I'm de-emphasizing it a little bit is that I've found that part of making it simple for our customers is we don't overly badger them for the reviews. Um, we do ask for a review every time we feel that somebody's happy. So internally, though, it's really helpful because we track um, in the form they fill out at the completion of the job, the, the job site support person, 
uh, they say whether they asked for a review, like if what the customer's disposition was. So if you ask for a review, then internally, I know that they got positive feedback from the customer because they're not going to ask for it if they, because they only get a bonus if they get a five-star review. So four-star doesn't count, obviously. We don't detract for ones or whatever, but those don't happen that often. Um, usually we're at least able to get somebody back to neutral uh, at the very least. But yeah, but the review velocity is just this idea of like, you need, it's super important that a high volume of your customers are. So like we, there are bigger roofing companies than us that have more reviews than we do maybe not in the hundreds with an actual five star. That's pretty hard. It's hard for us. Um, like we really work hard to make that happen. We have job site support. So that's probably the difference. Um, but uh, as a percentage, like, cause that's actually not the only place we have reviews online. We, we, we at first weren't focusing on Google. That was kind of a mistake. Um, but we, we do have a high percentage of a higher percentage than most of our customers that um, have written a, a positive review or had a good experience. So there are a few things I want to clarify here. So if I'm understanding correctly, sometimes you will naturally get the customer that's just like, I want to leave a review and nothing happens. And so you have to, what is the metric that you're having people track? You're tracking if the on-site support person asked for the review versus if they just left it and correct. Okay. Correct. And, and so, um, I guess there's a few things I want to understand here. One, is there a specific way that you ask for the review? I know that seems very minute, but like I, this is the stuff that I obsessed over as a copywriter is like how you ask is everything. And obviously yeah. this is working really well for you. So do you train them specifically on how to ask for a review or how do they do it? We should probably do it a little more, a little more training than we do, but um, most of the guys don't have a problem with it. Um, it, it. The important thing is again, the face-to-face. -face. So like if I just shoot you an email after like, from our office after you dealt with our company and I'm saying like, please review us. Like, do you really care? Probably not that much. Uh, if it's face-to-face -face and I'm like, were you happy today? Like, did we do, you know, can, is there anything else we can help with? They're like, oh, great. It was, you guys are so awesome, whatever. And then you're like, oh, would you, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Would you mind writing a review? And so we'll like, you know, text them the Google link or Google makes it a little harder to get their reviews. Before we were using a platform called reviews.io, um, which where you can literally just turn the iPad around and they can, do the do it but it doesn't obviously show up on google so we kind of evaluated and we're like well as long as we're tracking internally whether people are happy or not which is super important um the total amount of reviews we get is not quite as as important as long as you know it's substantial enough so hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I, maybe it's Richard Koch, I, Koch or I, I could be completely wrong, but it, no, no, it's Peter Drucker. Sorry. What measure gets managed? Yes, uh, yeah, so, like, Drucker, so, yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I love that. Like, you know, obviously you can see that, that Mark's company clearly values this as a metric that they're tracking and that it's, that's something that you should be thinking about too, is like, what are the, what are the numbers that you're managing inside of your business and why are they important? Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. So at this point, I, I, this has been incredible. And I know we, we've, we talked about all the highs. We talked about you crushing it. You talked about how, you know, the massive growth you have, your customers love you, you have millions of reviews, your team loves you. <laughs> but one of the, one of the, one of the things I, I, I wanted to ask is I came across my research and I was wondering if you'd be willing to share some of the, the business lows, if that's okay. And, and one of the things I saw was, um, this story, I, th I think it was on, on Perry's blog, but like you, you ended up, there was this point where you had to move into your in-laws basement. So would you mind telling us that story and kind yeah. of set the, the, the picture of what was going on then? Yeah. So classic entrepreneur story, really, um, right. Sort of earning, earning my rights or earning my stripes here. Um, so our first full year of business was 2015 
And um, as I said before, there just wasn't like, it was, it was successful from client satisfaction and we were testing out our ideas, uh, but we did not focus enough on sales at all. Um, and so we weren't making enough money at the time I, we were expecting our fourth child. Um, and I was the first employee, so I was being paid all the money, whatever there was of it. There wasn't that much or most of the money basically as the employee. Um, and there's no room to market, hire, grow, whatever. I was taking all the money basically, but I needed it. Um, because Marty was still with his dad at that time. So it was like that's our that was our way of of working it out is that I would jump ship first um and be our first employee. Um so fall 2015, I'm just seeing the writing on the wall. We're going into the winter, there's like no money. I didn't, you know, used up the little savings that I had had. Um and so uh we made the decision to so my my in-laws have um it's like 50 acres in Minnesota. Um, about a half hour outside of St. Paul. And, um, but they had space, like there's, it's her parents and then her brother and sister-in-law and their kids. So it was an, it was actually, luckily I, first thing is I get along with them. So it was not a, uh, it wasn't a personal or social burden to be with them. Um, but we did, and, and they did go out of their way to fix out a little apartment for us. Uh, it was still a little small, but at least they had the land to, to play around on and, um, and friends built in friends with their cousins. So it actually ended up being, once I got my head out of my ass, it ended up being a pretty idyllic time. Um, mm. But when we first moved, um, I mean, we, like, because my savings were getting used up, I was using all my credit cards. Um, I just spiraled into debt. You know, I was I was at the point. If you ever been in debt before or lost something, there's always that point where you just don't even open the letters anymore because you know what they are, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you change your phone number so that you don't have to listen to it anymore. So we, I reached that point, um, and at that point, we didn't like. Roof Simple was still technically alive. There was a job here and there, um, but I was like, I don't know what we're gonna do whatever. So I got another job, but during this whole time, so my son was born in July and my fourth child was born and it's not in July, in January, 2016. And, um, yeah, like three weeks later we moved, uh, a thousand miles away across the country. Um, but I had a panic attack, my first panic attack a week after he was born, um, went into the hospital, thought I was, I don't know, having a stroke or a heart attack or something like that. I don't know. That's how the panic I, um, manifested in me was like mm. health fears or whatever. Um, well, my, yeah. So, and so like, so I, I, I didn't, I'd never had anxiety like before, like that kind of, obviously I've been stressed out or anxious about, in, you know, specific things, but I had, had never had like a generalized anxiety where that was really irrational. Um, and so for uh, basically all the way until October, so 20, pretty much, 10 months out of 2016, I was like having panic attacks. I like got on some anti-anxiety meds, which were terrible. They make you like depressed and stuff. I had this other job and, um, and I just didn't know if the company was going to succeed, whatever. Yeah. So it was like, it was a dark, dark time. Um, but luckily, I mean, I got help and, um, I only ended up needing uh, counseling. I did weekly counseling, I think for three and a half months. Um, but it's amazing how quickly you can get out of it. Um, the first thing I did is the very first session I had, he, you know, he didn't make me get off my meds or whatever, but he just told me like, look, 
the more you run away, like you have to turn around slowly and start facing your fears. Um, and until you do that, you will always be anxious and panicky. Um, mm. And he's like, oftentimes medication makes anxiety worse. Um, so obviously this isn't medical uh, advice or whatever. So talk to your, talk to your clinical, whatever, <laughs> but I've definitely seen it a lot in other friends um, that if you are able to get counseling or therapy that helps you um, think it through basically um, and become more rational. And so uh, once I did that, I stopped taking the medications right away. And then, you know, it was still a little rough, but it was an upward trajectory. And then it sort of just compounded. And it is amazing how once you start facing your fears and learning to have the tools to recognize your sort of irrational behavior, because I, I still obviously get like, there's moments where that are like stressful or tense or, you know, with business or, or, you know, health or family or something like that, that you're worried about. But um, it was very valuable to get the tools to, to handle that. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was a dark time, but then we started hiring. I mean, it worked basically the plan worked. So I didn't need very much money. I needed hardly any money. Um, and because the generosity of my in-laws um and uh we were able to hire our first salespeople and then our first office people and job site people and it just compounded um and obviously I, and so i did all the sort of administrative office stuff a thousand miles away and marty did all the in-person things and um it took off and then our yeah so it it, so it paid did, off did, did you attribute the turnaround to the identification of like one specific fear? Like, was there one fear that you realized you're like, Oh, this is the thing that's really holding me back. Um, yeah, I think, well, I think it was realizing that, you know, well, I told you before that I dropped out of high school and college. So I don't, I have zero to, I don't even have a GED. I mean, I'm on paper. <laughs> I am useless. I'm completely useless. And one of, when I was looking around for a job, it was this realization of like, maybe I've just totally effed up my entire life and this is just a downward spiral. And I'm going to be one of those guys with, you know, a bunch of kids and not able to support them and it's going to be rough and you know, who knows. Um, and so you're like giving into sort of that darkness a little bit, instead of being a little more proactive and being like, Hey, you know, things aren't so bad. Like I actually like my in-laws. They have a winery. I like wine. Like I'm living on a <laughs> winery. The kids get to play. Grandma's, you know, helping teach them so and babysit them. So like it was actually pretty idyllic uh, for living in, in smaller quarters. Um, and it was really just getting, it was really just an attitude adjustment and being like, this isn't, it's not the end of the world. Like, so what if I'm in debt right now temporarily? Um, and I was able to start paying all that down and get out of most of that. Um, and so it's like, uh, I think in, in many ways, so I don't want to get like super religious or anything, but I'm, I'm Catholic and we have confession, which is where you confess your sins and you're forgiven or whatever. Right. So, um, one thing I think that's really important, whether you, whatever your religious beliefs are, is to realize that good things are literally one step away all the time. No matter how dark it is, the light is only one step in the opposite direction of the dark. So, like, there's always, always one little thing you could do that would move you towards the light. And, and once you do, it's like compound interest. Like, it spirals. Like, as soon as I just, like, got my head out of my ass and got counseling instead of, like, taking meds and being depressed and thinking the world was going to end indefinitely and there's the apocalypse and I die. Like, and then just being like, no, like, this is one step today. And then it was amazing, literally in months. And then it's like compounding. And then and then you started addressing 
bigger fears and going right after it and then being like, can you know, and one of the fears I think whenever you start a business is, can I do it? Do I have what it takes? Am I going to be a mm-hmm. failure? You know, all these things. And, um, and just realizing, no, it's always, the light is always just literally one step away, no matter how far down you are. So, yeah. And I want people to, to unpack that as well and listen to kind of how Mark articulated that is just that he was counting his wins. Like even when the, 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 the situation was at the rock bottom, he's talking about how grateful it was to live on the winery, how, how his kids got to play with his cousins, how they got experience to his, his grandma, you know? So like, like no matter what you're going through, there's always a way to count your wins. And in my mind, counting wins is a way to compound and change the momentum in the opposite direction of, of where you're going. So I, I think that was a, a really cool insight that you just shared there. Yeah, so, I, um, yeah, go for it. Could I get a little tangent? So yes. Um, I promise not to be political at all, but with 2020, <laughs> one thing that's been really interesting with everything is that I f- do feel like 2020 has been a choose your own adventure story. Um, and one thing, I think the biggest lesson I've taken away from it is that, and this is just really to 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 stress this idea of of being positive or whatever is seeing the silver lining. So I think being realistic about what's in front of you is obviously healthy. I don't think denying reality is is healthy at all. Um, but I think realizing that in everything there is a silver lining and a cloud, and 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 good things have clouds too. And that's like that's where opportunity can suck you in, is because you're only mm-hmm. looking at the silver lining and not at the cloud. And then, mm-hmm. but other times you're only looking at the cloud and not the silver lining. And what I realized with 2020 um, was, you know, COVID became a great excuse to do a lot of things that we needed to do in turn. Like 2019 was just a messy year. We got super bloated, and you know, just like. Got, uh, quite frankly, we got a little heady with our, at least I did with our success. And you're just like, oh, everything's great. And, you know, everything's fine. And then this totally unprecedented black swan comes and it's like, whoa, what are we going to do? Right. Um, and so all of a sudden we had this focus and this clarity and we cleaned up so many messes. Um, and then, um, you know, the other thing is like, because we do a fair bit of insurance work, a lot of, you know, we knock doors in the areas where there's been a storm or whatever, because most people don't know that they have damage. We do it respectfully. We're not high pressure, um, but it really is the only way often for people to find out. And, um, but in 2020, people were home and, you know, you can knock on the door and step back, put a mask, whatever, you know, whatever people need to feel comfortable. Um, and so, I mean, no matter what, no matter what, there is always a silver lining, but there's also a cloud. So I think, I think there's a nice balance there. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. Well, I want, I want to be respectful of your time and I know you say you didn't have a limit. And so I'm sure we could probably talk for, for a few hours, but I thought, I thought, I thought a good way to maybe kind of start wrapping things up or a little bit is, is let's just talk. Now we just talked about, you know, kind of a, a low point. Um, one of the things I saw too on, on feed story site, which is Bob's site is that you have a dream of turning your company to a national brand, utilizing a unique approach to roofing and having an intense focus on customer satisfaction. Mark and Marty have their sites set on bigger things. So maybe tell us a little bit about what your plans are moving forward and where you're taking roof simple. Yeah. So we just opened our first branch, uh, like away from our, like right now our, our home office serves Virginia, West Virginia, and shortly Maryland, because it's all right in the DC kind of Metro. Um, and we just last fall opened up a branch in the Dallas Fort Worth Metro area. Uh, and they're off to a nice start, but, um, no, with the brand, I guess I mean something very specifically when I say brand. And what I mean is that, um, we're recognized and, and, dare I say, loved. Um, and, 
again, this actually goes back to this core insight about net promoter score customer satisfaction. You literally can't build that. Like no, no amount of advertising covers up too many sins. You've got to have <laughs> underlying like goodness if if you want to be you know recognized and and liked or loved. Um, so part of the simplicity is also just keeping like keeping the brand very simplified as well. So it's easy to know what we do and uh, relate to us. But yeah, it's just, it's really just the creating a solid underlying foundation. And so it is a much more long-term thing. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're always looking at growth, but I mean, sometimes it's a step forward and a step back, you know, or whatever, it's whatever, you know, two steps forward, one step back, whatever it is. Um, So it's a very long-term plan. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, it's not like I have to do it tomorrow. Um, so, you know, I don't want to have too much, in some ways I don't want to have too much pressure, but I think if it's a good thing, it deserves to be. So I think, mm. and if you're, if you're hiring good people, they deserve to have this job and to, uh, and I think customers deserve to be taken care of. So, you know, whether it's us or somebody else, it might as well be us. Um, I don't see any other, especially there's a far, very fine line with sales because uh, you have to be sales focused especially with your sales team and you have to fully appreciate salespeople and what they do and how, in order to have a really strong sales culture. And I think early on I made, I made mistakes with that by sort of, you know, feeling like sales maybe was sleazy or something until I realized that first of all, a lot of the guys we have, I mean, especially all the guys we have now, like uh, they're all great people. I, I personally like them and trust them um, and they do a great job and they aren't pushy and mean and terrible. Right. So like it took me a, a little while to realize that sales actually has this incredibly important function. Um, mm. And as long as it's done right, right. By good people. And so a lot of the other larger companies in our space are very sales focused, but the underlying service uh, integrity side of it is not, it's not like it's terrible, but it's, it's not in my opinion, good enough. Um, and there's too much emphasis. There's only, or I should say, there's only emphasis on sales. Sales always needs an emphasis, um, and should always be emphasized. But it it always has to be counterbalanced by what you're delivering. And I, and then again, I think the long term there is is quite simple. Is is that you're going to have a high turnover of salespeople if they realize that what they're selling is not real um, yeah. or not real enough. And good salespeople really like that's one thing I look for when I'm interviewing is like how much are they pressuring me to make sure like, like, are they, are they really delivering on this thing? Because, you know, I'm not comfortable just going out there and making stuff up. Like, yeah, all good salespeople think on their feet, but they're thinking about something that's real, which is like the service that actually is worth it. Right. Um, so I think they go together beautifully, actually. I mean, I think the best way, the best people to sell for are, or companies to sell for are the ones that deliver. Um, and I think that delivering makes you better at sales. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. If it's a good thing, it deserves to be. I love that. Yeah. I think that's so true. It's like sometimes as entrepreneurs, you put so much pressure on growing and all these crazy things. But like, like that says, if it's a good thing, it deserves to be. And, you know, you only get one journey. So, yeah. you know, why, why put all this pressure on yourself? And like, if you're doing the right things, if you're, if you're, um, you know, effective versus ineffective and just kind of like removing all the the head clutter that comes as a result of it and just moving forward at all times like you're going to get to where you want to go so don't kill yourself getting there so yeah uh mark i want to ask just one last question then we can wrap things up here so if you were to kind of put this on a bumper sticker and you know maybe something subtle there's something somebody saw it how how would you what was the one thing that you would want people to take away from this interview oof Um, that's a big one 
<laughs> it is. Um, gosh, that's hard. Um, I mean, I, in some ways, I would, I would maybe be a little cliche and say, keep it simple. And I think what you're trying to do with the podcast and your audience is, at the end of the day, it's simpler and thinking more long term to balance life rather than uh, live it too much in stages. I mean, there's always stages of some kind, but like, you know, I have kids, I have a wife. I, you know, I joke that, yeah, my wife's a stay at home mom and I'm a stay at home dad. Um, we're both staying home. Um, That's cool. It doesn't work for everybody. So it's not about too much getting very specific. I think everybody has different paths, but, um, but I think what you're doing is wonderful about, I don't think it's a trade-off between having the success that is right for you and then and and having a life of it but that's part of it i mean basically what you're saying and i i agree 100% is that um success is really having you know meaningful and profitable work um and a meaningful and you know um loving life i mean with people you care about. So, I mean, I would say, keep it simple. I mean, I would just go with, that's a time tested cliche. I think it's it always true. But I, 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 I will second that and just say that that is beyond so true. Cause it's like, whenever I've heard these people that have grown companies to crazy amounts, it's never more complexity. It's always more simplicity. So yeah, I, I, I think you, you definitely, um, you know, it, it, it works to stick with some of the times, the, <laughs> the things that have been said a lot, but like, sometimes you, sometimes you need to hear it from the right messenger. So hopefully, hopefully somebody listening to this heard that from Mark and it meant something different than, than the other times you've heard it. So Mark, thank you so much. The very, very last question is a really simple one is where can people find out more about all the stuff that you got going on? Uh, well, obviously it's roofsimple.com. Um, if you want to learn about our company, um, I am on LinkedIn and get notifications there. I'm not on other social media. Unfortunately I have a lot of real life things to be doing. Um, and so I will always take an email if it's not a solicitation. I mean, if you have a really amazing sales pitch, I don't know, go ahead and throw it, but I might delete <laughs> it. Um, but if you're genuinely interested in talking to me, I'm happy to just, just email me marketroofsimple.com. I'll get back to you and I, I'm happy to start conversations and meet people. So. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for so much for sharing your wisdom today, Mark. This has been a blast and we'll talk to you hopefully soon. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Brandon. This is great. And I, uh, great interviewer. I, mean, I really feel like it was super easy to talk to you and, um, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.